There was a couple who were traveling home after their daughter's wedding. Uh, They, of course, had had a long day. It had been a good day, but a long day. They were looking at a three-hour journey home. And as they were traveling, they were talking about what happened at the wedding and how beautiful the wedding was and all of that. But eventually the wife sort of just drifted off to sleep. But suddenly she awoke. The car was shaking and weaving. She said she kept her eyes closed because she was certain they were in the midst of a wreck. But then the shaking and the weaving continued on a moment and then another moment. And then it stopped and she opened her eyes and her husband had just taken the car off of cruise control and they were driving down the median of a divided highway of an interstate. And she said her husband never loses his composure and this time was no exception. He got back up onto the interstate and she said to him, honey, honey, what happened? Did you fall asleep? And he said, yeah, I fell asleep. And then she asked him an obvious question. Honey, do I need to drive? And he told her, no, sweetheart, I'm wide awake now. (laughs) Now, there are times that sleeping is good, that sleeping is very good, but driving is definitely not one of those times. If you're driving and you're getting sleepy, you need something to wake you up. Sometimes in life, we need something to wake us up. Sometimes in life, we need a wake-up call. We need to stop and ask, okay, where are we? And where are we heading? Which way are we going? And these are the questions and issues that we're going to think uh, together about as we begin a journey through the book of Haggai. We'll be in Haggai chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to to take a pew Bible right there in front of you and turn to page 839. Now, Haggai is a series of messages that the prophet Haggai delivered to the Jews. And Haggai is more than likely the author, this being uh, a book uh, of messages that he delivered. It was about events that occurred in the 6th century BC when Darius was the king of Persia. As we begin this book... I'm going to take a moment and give you an overview of Israel's history. So this is a a short history lesson. You'll remember that God called Abraham and he said to Abraham, I'm going to, to give you a land, a land that's great. And through you and through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world. And that was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Well, later the people of Israel would find themselves enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And after 400 years of slavery, God miraculously delivered them. And they were supposed to be going into the promised land that God had promised Abraham, but they didn't because the people rebelled. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And then they went into the land. They they took control of the land. And they were led by judges during this time. And then later, they were led by kings. And the first king was Saul, and the second king was David. And then was King Solomon. And during King Solomon's reign, Israel enjoyed abundance. The nation flourished. They were strong. They were wealthy. And Solomon led the people to build a temple. And the temple was the place where the people met God. It symbolized God's presence among his people. Well, after Solomon died, there was trouble and the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Well, in 722 BC, the empire of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. 
In 612 BC, the Medes and the Babylonians worked together and they conquered the empire of Assyria. Well, later the Babylonians being led by King Nebuchadnezzar would come and they would destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was wiped out. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. The temple was ransacked. And the people who were there, most of them were taken into captivity to Babylon. And then in 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians joined forces and they overtook the Babylonians. And King Cyrus, the leader of this Medo-Persian or or Persian empire, he permitted the Jews to return to their homeland. And so in 538 BC, the Jews returned home to their homeland. Many of them did. And in 536, they began rebuilding the temple, but quickly they faced trouble and the work was abandoned. And then after a while, they grew distracted and eventually they became apathetic about the temple. Let's take a look at Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for yourselves to live in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins. Now the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much. But harvested little. You eat. But never have enough to be satisfied. You drink. But never enough to be happy. You put on clothes. But never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber and build the house and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land, its crops, I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and on all that your hands produce. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. In verse 1, we see the setting of the book. We're introduced to the main characters. In fact, Haggai gives exact dates for the events in the book. King Darius came to power in 522 BC. So this was the second year, the first uh, day of the sixth month in our modern calendar system. This occurred on August the 29th, 520 BC. I want to mention something to you briefly that's sort of an aside. 
But it reveals that the Bible is unique among other religious books. In the Bible, spiritual truths are rooted in history. The truths about God, the deep truths about God, they're rooted in our history. In other religious books, this isn't the case. They address spiritual or esoteric things, not things that that occur here uh, in in our time, in our history. Let me give you an example. We're we're talking about Darius, the king of Persia. The, The Bible talks about him. Did a man named Darius live? Was he the king of the Persians? And the answer to that is absolutely. If you travel to Iran today, you can see the Behestun inscription. This is an inscription, a rock carving, in which King Darius gives his own autobiography. And there are other archaeological artifacts that confirm King Darius's existence. When we look in the Bible, we see spiritual truths rooted in history. And this is another reason to have confidence in the book. Another reason we believe that this is indeed the word of God. Let's get back to verse 1. The first day of the month was the new moon. And generally they would have celebrations, holy days, in which the people would gather in Jerusalem. Now we don't know a lot about the prophet Haggai. He's one of the restoration prophets. That is, the prophets who prophesied to the people after they had returned to uh, Judah. Now Zerubbabel was the governor uh, of Judah. And Joshua was the high priest. And these two had returned when the first group came back from Babylon. They had returned leading the people. In verse 2, God speaks through Haggai. This is a word from God. It's not Haggai's opinion. It is God's word. Now notice here in verse 2 that God is called the Lord of armies. Or some versions will say the Lord of hosts. In fact, in this chapter, you'll see God referred to in that way five times. What is Haggai emphasizing? He's emphasizing the fact that God is sovereign, that he's the ruler of all, that he has control of not just earthly armies, but ultimately of heavenly armies. He is the sovereign ruler of all. When God speaks of the Jews in verse 2, notice that he refers to them as this people. Now, you would expect him to refer to them as my people, but he refers to them as this people, and this is an indictment. You see, the people had ignored God. They had forgotten about God. They had gone their own way, and so the Lord here doesn't even call them his own people. He just calls them this people. And God says, this people, they say it isn't time to build the temple. It's not the right time. Now, the temple, as I mentioned earlier, is really important because the temple symbolized the presence of God among his people. God said to his people, in essence, you bring your sacrifices and your offerings to the temple. You come here to worship me, and I will dwell with you right here. So to say that the temple isn't really important is to say that God's presence isn't important among his people. To say that the temple really isn't important is ultimately to say that being near to God, that God himself isn't important. And so that's exactly what the people had done by their action, or maybe we should say by their inaction. Now remember that they had returned to Jerusalem nearly 20 years before this. Now at first, as we mentioned earlier, they began work on the temple, but they quickly abandoned that work. They got busy with their own lives. They were distracted. They were doing this and taking care of that. And then there was this to do and that to do. And then eventually they just sort of grew apathetic. Yeah, we know there needs to be a temple, but oh, well, we, we didn't get that done. One of these days we'll get there. We, we know, but we're not there yet. Now in verse 4, 
God asks his people a question. Is it time for you to live in your houses that are, that are finished and nice while my temple lies in ruins? Now remember, it had been nearly 20 years since they had returned. 20 years of neglecting the temple. What is God trying to say to his people? He's trying to get their attention. Is it time for you to have your homes while my home lies desolate? He's trying to help them wake up, to help them see that they've prioritized the living of their own lives. But in the process, they've rejected him. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, they had rejected their God. They're indifferent about the temple of God. Notice that the word time is repeated four times in verses 2 through 4. You see, the people had time to construct their own homes. They had time to do what was important to them, but they did not have the time to do what it took to honor God and to be close to God. They've grown apathetic toward him. Their own houses are taken care of, of course. In verse 5, God urges his people to think carefully about their ways. He says, consider what you're prioritizing in life. Consider what you're neglecting. Think about what you're giving your time and your attention to. It's a wake-up call for the people of God. This is God's rebuke of his people. Consider what you're doing. In verse 6, God invites his people to think about their circumstances. He said, you so much but you harvest little. You eat, but you're never full. You drink, but you never have enough. You put on clothing, but you're still cold. You earn wages only to put them in a bag with holes in it. In verse 7, God echoes this warning again. He says, think about your life. Consider your circumstances. Don't you see that things aren't right Don't you see that things are out of order? He says to his people, don't you get it? You've moved away from me. You've moved away from my blessing. You see, disregard for God never results in human flourishing. Disregard for God never results in human flourishing. We can't be all that God intended us to be when we decide we're going to live life away from him and apart from him. We remove ourselves from the blessing of God. So God has given a diagnosis for the problem. Now let's take a look at the prescription in verses 8 and following. In verse 8, God commands his people to gather the materials to build the temple and to get busy, to get to work. And he says that God would be honored and pleased. You see, God delights in our loving obedience toward him. That honors him. That, That glorifies him. Their heartfelt obedience would bring God glory. In verse 9, God reiterates the foolishness of life apart from God. He says you hope for a lot, but it amounts to little. When you bring what you've harvested to your home, I ruin it, God says, or I I blow it away. Now, we might be tempted at this point to think, man, God's being cruel. Why is he being so difficult? But what we need to see is that this was the mercy of God in the lives of his people. It was his mercy. It was his kindness to them. Why? Because by his removing his blessing, it's giving his people a chance to wake up. It's giving his people a chance to go, whoa, whoa, we're heading in the wrong direction. We've been going this way. Oh, but God's calling us to go this way. And so it was his mercy, the kindness of God. Notice that God asks why. Why do I blow what you have away? Why do I ruin what you have? Because God's house is desolate. The temple is in ruins. But each person, they have their home. Their homes are complete. Each person's busy and occupied taking care of their own affairs. 
God wants his people to see the link between their economic hardships and their indifference toward him. They had ignored God and he was withholding his blessing. Now, friend, as I read this passage, it made me think of the empty churches today all across the West. You look in Europe and and even here in America and churches are closing down left and right. Many churches are are still open with just a handful of parishioners, a faithful few trying to to, to keep moving ahead. Our own church will accommodate far more worshipers than we have on any given Sunday of worship. There's just so much to distract. There's so much to, to pull our attention and to draw us away from God. And frankly, in all of our lives, there's so much indifference often. There's so much apathy. And God's word to the people of Haggai, it rings true for us today. Surely it is time for us to wake up. In verse 10, God says, For this reason, even the skies have withheld their dew. Now in the heat of August and September, during this time of harvest, this ripening grain needed the dew to keep from wilting. So God's withholding the dew. He's withholding its crop, crops. The, the earth is not producing a harvest. It's a small harvest or it's no harvest at all. In verse 11, God stopped the rains. He brought a widespread drought that was affecting all of their labors. It isn't that the people wouldn't work. It's that when they worked, it amounted to so little. Once again, this is God's kindness trying to, to get the attention of his people to wake his people up from their own self-centered living, to wake his people up from busying themselves with their own pursuits while ignoring him, neglecting him, overlooking him. So God has given a diagnosis. God has given a prescription. Let's see how the people respond in verses 12 and following. When we see the leaders, Zerubbabel, Joshua, as well as the people, well, they listen to the message of Haggai. So often the prophets of old faced an audience that was rebellious, an audience that was apathetic, but not so Haggai. The people feared God and they obeyed him. They they responded. When God gave them a wake-up call, they said, we're going to obey. Now remember up in verse 2, God called the Jews this people. But now in verse 12, God is their God And what we see is that when we obey, it restores our fellowship and our closeness to God. Now he's not, now they're not this people. No, now they belong to their God. Oh. In verse 13, God gave his people another word through the prophet Haggai. It was a word of reassurance. He said to his people, now remember now his people have repented. They're they're seeking to obey him. And so God in his mercy gives them a word of, of reassurance. Remember what the people had neglected the temple. And what did the temple represent? It represented the presence of God. But look in verse 13. What does God promise his people? You're going to have my presence with you. So as they sought to obey him, God promises them the very thing they had neglected. His presence. His help. He was going to be with his people. In verse 14, we see that as the people obeyed, God roused their hearts and stirred their hearts the hearts of the leaders, the hearts of the people to begin rebuilding the temple. So the Lord helped them to follow through and obey. He gave them something within their hearts. 
within their spirits. We see that the work began on the temple according to our modern calendaring system on September the 21st, 520 B.C. So God has energized this people for the task before them. As we reflect on chapter 1, what does this passage teach? Well, the, the main idea of this passage is this. Think carefully. Think carefully about your life and commitment to God. Think carefully about your life and your commitment to God. The parallel to our own times is startling. To how many of us might God say, you've shown attention to your own house, to your own affairs, to the things that were important to you, but you've neglected me. You're distracted, you're indifferent, you're apathetic. Just as God called the Jews to wake up, he's calling you and me to wake up. He's calling us to consider our commitments, to consider what we're pursuing Is he the central pursuit of your life? Or is the central pursuit of your life building your own kingdom, your own house? It is time for us to wake up as the people of God. What if you were told that you only had months to live? Well, that's the situation that Michael Sellers found himself in. He was dying of cancer. He knew that his death was near. In fact, he died when his daughter was 16 years old. But before he died, he prepaid for flowers to be delivered to his daughter, Bailey, every year until she turned 21. He wrote a card to accompany that bouquet of flowers, each bouquet of flowers. And on her 21st birthday, she received the final bouquet. And the card said, among other things, this is my last love letter to you. Until we meet again. Now imagine the emotion that Bailey felt as she read those last words of her father. What Michael Sellers' actions reveal is that in his last days, he prioritized a deep love for his daughter. He put a focus on finding ways to communicate to to that baby girl of his, how much he loved her. But what about you? What if you only had days or weeks to live? What changes would you make? What what changes would you make? What would you prioritize? Friends, maybe some of those changes need to be made now. Maybe it's time for us to make some changes now and not wait until we just have a while to live or until it's simply too late. Maybe it's time to make some changes now. So let's reflect more about how these verses shape our thinking and our lives. First, the difficulties that you face may be God's grace to wake you up, to help you see that you've grown distracted, to help you see that you've grown indifferent in your life and in your love for God. It could be that God is giving you these difficulties just to wake you up because he loves you, because he wants to bring you home. The Jews must have been wondering, why are we working so hard? We're, we're, we're giving our all and we've got nothing to show for it. They had to have been wondering that. And maybe the obstacles that you're facing, maybe they could be to help get your attention, to help wake you up from indifference, from distraction. Next, examine what you emphasize, what you prioritize. Examine what you emphasize and what you prioritize. 
Where your time goes, where your treasure goes, where your talent goes. Time, treasure, talent. The way we use these resources reveals what has our hearts. So look at how you spend your time. Look at how you spend your money. Look at what you give your talent to. Oh, we can look in those areas and we can know what we value. We can recognize where we're heading in life. Friend, do you need a wake-up call? Is it time to make some changes? Have you pushed the Lord to the side? You've grown so distracted, you're doing this and going there and doing that. Man, we're busy with this, busy with that, so busy, so covered up. Good things, many of them, most of them, maybe all of them. But not the best things. Not the things that ultimately matter. Not the things that will really matter when you're weeks away from death. Days away from death. No, this is a call to prioritize and to put the focus of our lives on the thing that matters most. And that is a love for God. A deep love for God. So examine what you emphasize. What you prioritize. Next, your closeness to God is restored through obedience. You see, once they began to obey, God made his presence known among them. When you obey that's, that's the way that you draw near to God. That's the way that you know his, his presence and his joy. When you obey him, it gives a new strength, a, a new joy. So now, God doesn't dwell in a temple. No, God dwells in the hearts of every person who knows Jesus. And how do we draw close to him? Well, we, we spend time reading the word. We read God's word. We do it daily. We spend good time in prayer. We, we pray daily. We, we serve him. God calls all believers to jump in and to serve. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12, every believer is supposed to be contributing their part to make the body of Christ, the church, strong. So one of the ways that that we obey is we serve him. We serve in the church and we strengthen the church. And in some ways, that's sort of like building the temple today. This is a way to obey him. When we obey him, he draws near to us. He blesses us. We share Jesus with others. It's another way to, to draw near to him. But every one of these ways takes time. Time, time, what will you do with your time? What you do with your time, with your treasure, with your talents, reveals what you truly value. Men, what happens if you ignore your wife when they text you or fellas when you ignore messages that your girlfriend has sent you? Well, I think it's pretty clear that if you do that, you're probably going to have some relationship trouble. You're going to have a few issues. Not that I know anything about that personally. But if you want to be close to your lady, you got to acknowledge her. you got to respond to her. Similarly, if we are so busy living our lives, ignoring God, ignoring his word, ignoring his commands, how on earth can we expect to be near him, to know his presence, to be close to him? So closeness to God is restored through obedience. Next, pray for God to awaken your heart to give you a longing to obey him. Pray for him to awaken your heart, to give you a longing to obey him. You see, as the Jews sought to obey God, he stirred their hearts. So ask him to give you a fresh love for him. Next, temple worship with its sacrifices pointed forward. Temple worship with its sacrifices pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ You see, the people were to bring sacrifices to the temple. And they offered those sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins to worship 
and honor God. But all of those sacrifices, every one of them was meant to point forward to to a sacrifice who would come, the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus died on the cross and he took the penalty and the punishment for our sin upon himself. Those outstretched arms, that bloody and droopy head of Christ on the cross, his back grisly and bruised, Why? Why did he go to the cross? Friends, he went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice of God that your sins might be forgiven. He took the punishment for your sin upon himself, for my sin upon himself. And now if we call out to him, we can find forgiveness of our sins. We can find life in him. We can become a child of God. That's the promise that God made that he would send a perfect sacrifice. The temple just pointed forward. And now we live in a time where Christ has come, where he's rescued. Now, temple worship during this time was a little bit like going to the ER for maybe a a bad skin rash. You go to the the ER and the ER doctor says to you, you know, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm going to give you this ointment. I think it'll help. But if you want a cure, you better go to your dermatologist. You better go to your dermatologist and and, and he'll give you a cure. Well, friends, temple worship was sort of like an ointment. But Christ, he is the cure. He's the cure. He is the cure for your sin and for your guilt. He is the only cure. So we've seen that in Christ, we can be made right with God. We can know God personally and have his presence in our lives. Many of you will recognize the name Larry Ellison. He's the founder of, of Oracle. Uh, among the world's richest people with a net worth of nearly $60 billion. Ellison spends his wealth collecting top real estate properties all over the globe. You should see pictures of the mansions that he owns. Just amazing. He collects jets and yachts and uh, the like. Two of his yachts are just over the length of a, of a half of a football field. And they, they both, uh, these two yachts both have basketball courts on them. He enjoys basketball. So he, he goes out on his yachts and he plays basketball. What happens if one of those basketballs goes over the rails? No problem. He has a powerboat that trails alongside the yacht to retrieve the lost balls. There's no problem with, with losing any of those basketballs. Now, it's difficult to imagine that kind of money. But Ellison's wealth makes us think about priorities in life. And Ellison's wealth and how he spends his money is not really the issue. That's not what's on the table today. What's on the table today is how you are spending your life, your time, your treasure, your talent. That's the issue for us, our own priorities. So what are you investing in? What is your life about? Which direction are you heading? Think carefully about your life and commitment to God. Think carefully. My fellow believer, what is it that's distracted you? What houses are you building? Brothers and sisters, it's time to build the house of the Lord. It's time to build the house of the Lord. It's time to draw near to him. What is God's word to those of us who know Jesus today? God's word is this. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. 
That's God's word to us. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I want to ask you, what's your life about? Maybe you've spent your life just trying to get stuff, get more. Maybe you've spent your life, you know, chasing after pleasures. Let's, let's hang out Friday night. Let's do whatever. Let's go for the buzz. Or maybe you've just not really known what life was about. You've tried to figure it all out. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. The dots don't seem to connect. Friend, I want you to know you were created not to chase after those things. You were created to know God. To know him personally as a best friend. To have his presence in your life. That, that's why you were created. How can you know him like that? How can you know him as your God? Not just a God, but your God? Well, you call out to Jesus in faith and you say to Jesus, I've sinned, I've gone my own way, but I'm turning away from that. And I believe, Jesus, that you came and died on the cross, that you were buried and that you rose again, and I want to follow you. And friend, if you call out to God like that, I want you to know you're going to find that God will pick you up and he'll hold on to you and he'll never let you go and he'll give your life meaning. He'll give your life purpose. Oh, let us chase after him. Let us prioritize him. Let us quit building our own houses, chasing after our own pursuits, and let us pursue him, the God who longs, longs to be near. Let's pray.